Good morning. The pulpit is a very personal space, very public, but also very personal. So when a colleague, especially a very dear colleague, such as Pastor Andrew, um, offers his pulpit to another colleague, it is a gesture of trust and respect, and it's very humbling. So I thank you for this invitation to speak with you and to you. And I'm thrilled that you're going to be engaging in issues of sustainability and protecting the earth. Um, and I saw already in what we read and why hear what's coming, um, I'm, I'm in a sense preaching to the choir. <laughs> you already seem to be so totally engaged, which is fabulous. And I know that you've got some sustainability leaders right here in your own church. Um, but I wanted to bring just a slightly different view of how we can be inspired to continue to be engaged in this difficult but sacred work. Our lives, both personal and communal, are held together by stories. The stories we tell about our successes and our failures. The stories we tell about our health and our illnesses. The stories we tell about our children and relationships. The stories we tell about the marketplace and the role of government. All these stories determine who we are what we value, and how we behave. So it is with our stories about nature, the stories we tell about the world around us and our relationship to it determine how we behave toward nature, how we think about it, how much we care for it. And today, nothing could be more urgent than getting that story right. For the trajectory of all life on Earth truly depends on it. So I want to reread with you today two stories of the Bible that speak about the beginnings of nature and the world, or in the language of faith, what we call creation. So we start with Genesis 1, in which creation bursts into existence with a biblical big bang. In the beginning, all was chaos, tohu vavohu, wild and waste, until God said, let there be light, and there was light. God, in this story, with great intention and deliberation, with hopes and dreams. And I think it's okay to talk about God and dreams because every day God pauses and checks God's work to see what it's like and says, okay, this is good. <laughs> I can keep going. I think that's a bit of dreaming in God. God in this story brings forth life. The sun and the moon, the heavens and the land, water, air, vegetation, animals, humanity, all are part of God's intentional, purposeful love of creation. Genesis 1 speaks of the methodical building of a world from nothing, each day a new arena emerging prepared to hold and support its portion of life. The waters were ready for the creatures were made ready for the creatures of the sea, the skies for the creatures of the air, the dry land was made ready for plants and animals everything in a place prepared for it. The message of Genesis 1 is that God created a world of wildness with resources and capacity for self-regeneration. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, seed-bearing plants, seed-bearing plants, fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. 
If left undisturbed, if allowed to live out the plan of the creator, life would of its own unfold, one generation cascading into another forever. This was the world, according to the Bible story, that the first humans entered, a self-generating world of verdancy and fullness and never-ending renewal. And it was regarding this wild, untamed world that God gave the blessing, indeed the charge, to the first human, saying, be fertile and increase, fill the earth and master it, and rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all living things that creep on the earth. And no wonder. The first humans needed that blessing, for they were weak and only two. They had so much to learn. Their footprint was so small and their vulnerability was so great. Thus, in Genesis 1, humankind, man and woman, were blessed with the mandate to explore and use all the gifts of inspiration with which they were endowed to fend off the dangers of wildness and to enjoy the seemingly endless bounty of this God-given world. And so we did, humankind did, for thousands of years. We tamed the rivers and we felled the trees. We distilled potions from the plants to reduce our fevers and ease our pains. We built cities and roads and museums. We planted and harvested and gathered in, changing the land and the flora and even the watercourses as we went. We were fruitful and we multiplied and we burst the bounds of God's blessing. In short, Genesis 1 depicted an anthropocentric call to creation where vulnerable humans use the abundant resources of the earth to survive and flourish in an eternally self-regenerating world. And for thousands of years, we've done just that and lived fully into those blessings. But now, for the first time in human history and Earth's four and a half billion years of history, things are different. We are in so many ways past the era of Genesis 1. Though individually and we are small and at the mercy of nature's power, collectively we are large. Over the last 150 years, we have profoundly altered the contours of the Earth. We have grown to over seven billion people. We have upset the elements of the world's operating systems in ways that are irreparable in, men, in any meaningful human time frame. Genesis 1 was the story for the first era, the first 10,000 years of human civilization. We have met that promise of Genesis 1. We have mastered the ways of the earth and we have filled it. We filled it with ourselves, our roads, our cities, our agriculture, plastic, burnt fossil fuels. And now that blessing of mastery is turning into a curse. We need another story to guide our next chapter, to regain a vision of how we should be with creation. We need another story to guide us, and blessedly, we have that story in the very next verses of the Bible, Genesis 2. When the Lord God made earth and heaven, no shrub of the field was yet on earth, and no grasses of the field had yet sprouted, because the Lord God had not yet sent rain upon the earth, 
and there was no human yet to till the soil. In Genesis 2, a new story of the beginnings of creation is told. Here, there is no pre-existing smorgasbord laid out before us just waiting for humans to appear and help ourselves. The world is not imagined as an easily self-regenerating affair for our enjoyment. In Genesis 2, the earth awaits the arrival of humankind whose presence is necessary for the fuller development of earth's verdancy and abundant goodness. Again, when the Lord God made earth and heaven, no shrub of the field was yet on the earth, and no grasses of the field had yet sprouted because the Lord had not yet sent rain upon the earth, and there was no human to till the soil. So the Lord God formed the human and placed the human in the Garden of Eden to till it and to tend it. Here, humankind is an essential, indispensable part of the garden's growth. We were and we are part of this world's rich unfolding. Our job in Genesis 2 is not to subdue and consume the world's goodness for our sole benefit, but to bring the world into its own fullness so that all life may thrive. In Genesis 2, we're not accidental beneficiaries of the Earth's ever-renewing bounty, but its nurturers and co-creators. And from the very start, we were instructed that there were limits to our reach, which, if breached, as they have been, would cause devastating consequences. And the Lord God commanded the humans, saying, you may eat from every tree of the garden, save for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat from it, for if you do, on that very day, you shall die. Well, we did eat from it, though we did not die on that day at that very moment. But by defying and violating the operating rules of the garden, the word of God, we destroyed the only world we knew. We cannot afford to do that again. Unlike our ancestors who lived in an era gilded by the rules, guided by the rules of Genesis 1, we live in an era guided by the rules of Genesis 2. Today, so much of Earth's abundance and goodness actually depend on us. Nature alone, for example, could never have made this grand sanctuary. Nature alone cannot feed seven billion people. And nature does not weave the stories of God and hope that we do. We humans are an absolute essential part of history's unfolding. We must acknowledge and come to terms with the geophysical powers that we now possess and wield for good and for harm and develop an ethic that can honor, restrain, and guide those powers so we and our children can live in a thriving world. This is what Isaiah taught when he said, the Lord who creates the heavens is God, the one who fashions the earth and makes it and prepares it. He did not create it to be chaos. He fashioned it to be inhabited. Our task and the whole reason for our being, according to Genesis 2, is to make and keep God's world inhabitable for each other, for the plant and animal kingdoms, the planet as a whole, and all generations yet to come. 
Today, it is up to us. The Catholic theologian Thomas Berry taught that each generation has a great work that they are called to do. Repairing the world of the harm we have caused it is the great work of our generation. For it will be impossible for our children to get things right if we get it wrong. A midrash, a rabbinic story from the 10th century tells us, when the Holy One created the first human, he took him around and introduced him to all the trees of the Garden of Eden and said to him, see how beautiful and wonderful my works are. Everything I have created, I've created for you. Be mindful that you do not ruin or devastate my world, for if you ruin it, there will be no one after you who can set it right. That was 10th century. It is up to us, this generation, the last ones who can get it right. So what are we to do? There's no silver bullet, but as Catherine Hayhoe, a United States climate scientist and evangelical Christian puts it, there is silver buckshot, which means if we all pitch in and do our part, we can get this done. We can build a world that is better and brighter and healthier and more just and as fully inhabitable as it was meant to be. There's so many things that we can do, and as I see, you've got people in this community and congregation that can help you do this. So I will leave you with just three ways, which will take some effort, but doing them, as you know, is urgent. And if we do them well, they will pay off handsomely. So the first bit of buckshot. It actually sounds easy, and maybe it is, but we have to do it. And I don't mean, it's not facile, by the way. Talk about the problem. Talk about it, any part of it. And you don't need to be a scientist to talk about it. You just need to be concerned to talk about it. Talk about energy, transportation, deforestation, waste, overconsumption, all those things we spoke about when we prayed earlier today. Environmental injustice. Because silence means there's no problem. Silence means there's no urgency. Silence means there's no interest or no real sense of movement. So talk about it. Talk about it at dinner, at the office, in Bible study, at the gym, at the store. Two weeks ago, five million people around the world talked about it, led by the youth of dozens of nations. And we felt the urgency. Talk about it. Make it an active issue in your lives and the lives around you, for it is. Second, create a sustainability plan for your church, your business, your home, yourself. Name it, this plan, measure it, plan it. Choose at least one area of action. Could be food, energy, transportation, consumption, your lawn, your home, your land, your compost. Learn how to do it better, and then do it. Third, join a movement. We cannot do this by ourselves. Our individual actions alone, while essential, are not sufficient. We need to move industry and government to build the right infrastructures, the right systems, the right products that have a uh, recyclable, 
renewable, a life cycle to them. And we need to build those systems so that they care for those caught in the economic transition. And we need to do it now. So whether it's how to get 100% renewable energy by 2050, or how to best clean the bay, or how to reforest our city and state, or how to create sustainable agriculture, or how to build urban farms, or how to develop curbside composting, or how to infuse the love of nature in our children, there's a group for you to join and support, and they need you. One effort I'm involved in, which I am happy to talk to you about after services, is the Healthy Green Maryland Amendment. It's an effort to establish a constitutional amendment in our state's Bill of Rights that guarantees your right to a healthy environment, thus creating the legal foundation and collective affirmation that assures that everyone, everyone is entitled to clean air, clean water, a healthy ecosystem, and a stable climate. That is our right. That is what the world was made for, for us to inhabit. Isaiah said it, the Lord who creates the heavens is God, the one who fashions the earth and makes it and prepares it. He did not create it to be chaos, but to be inhabited. God took chaos and made a world. We dare not take God's world and make chaos. Our great work lies before us. It's been said that those who fight for a healthy environment can make pesky neighbors, but that they make cherished ancestors. We cannot afford to fail. Let us be those ancestors whom our children will cherish.